Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I'm your host, Alex Danzig, and we're excited to announce that we're bringing the Cafe Bitcoin conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Michael Saylor, Lynn Alden, Corey Clipston, Greg Foss, Tomer Strolight, and many others in the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode. You can join us live on Twitter Spaces Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern every morning to become part of the conversation yourself. Thanks again. We look forward to bringing you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. Yo, what's up, everybody? Good morning. Welcome to Cafe Bitcoin. Morning, Sam. How's it going? Good morning, everyone. Morning. Good morning, guys. Sam, you're headed off to uh, Bitcoin Atlantis here in a bit? Yeah, a couple days. Um, I'm getting there a little early and excited to go to Madeira. Um it's going to be a great time, I think. A lot of great speakers and really honored to be a part of it. And honestly, just excited to get somewhere with some more sunshine. <laughs> I love the food there, too. So I'm stoked. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Excited for the weekend. Excited to hang out. Excited to see the video footage coming out of Madeira. I know, uh, yeah, let, let, let us know how it is, Sam, when you get back. Of course. Well, there's a lot of news to talk about, and it's an exciting day to actually host, because one of the reasons that I got into Bitcoin was I was very fascinated with Satoshi Nakamoto. Like he, it was one of the first things that I came across where it really grabbed my attention that somebody or a group of people created this digital money and nobody knew his identity. And to have somebody be anonymous in the digital age, it's really difficult to do. And it just blew my mind. It read like a, a novel or something that nobody knew who this person was who created this very powerful technology. And so I read like the book of Satoshi and I've read pretty much everything he put out. And now this morning we have new correspondence between Satoshi and some of the early um, workers on Bitcoin. And so let's talk about it because it's really fascinating. One, there's some exchanges between Adam Back and Satoshi, but then there's this morning there's, there's another whole thread um, between another early worker and there are some fascinating, fascinating insights on it. So um, this guy's name is Marty Malmi from AKA Cyrus, who talked with Satoshi very early on. And one of the interesting questions that he asked was like, why did you pick 21 million coins? And Satoshi said, my choice for the number of coins and distribution schedule was an educated guess. It was a difficult choice because once the network is going it's locked in and we're stuck with it. I wanted to pick something that would make prices similar to existing currencies. But without knowing the future, that's very hard. I ended up picking something in the middle. If Bitcoin remains a small niche, 
it'll be worth less per unit than existing currencies. If you imagine it being used for some fraction of world commerce, then there's only going to be 21 million coins for the whole world. So it would be worth much more per unit. And so it's just it's fascinating just to hear from Satoshi because we always wondered like, why did he pick 21 million? And now we have like an answer. So what do you guys think? Yeah, no, it's very cool exchange. Also, shout out to uh, Marty Malmi. Uh, he was one of the original or one of the OG Bitcoin core developers. I think he was only active from like 2009 to 2011, 2012-ish, and then kind of moved on to other projects. But um, yeah, definitely very cool. Was not on my bingo card for seeing that this morning. Um, totally agree with you guys seeing how uh, it's pretty pretty amazing to see this and how forward thinking Satoshi was, was pretty insane. Um, the one that I saw Will Reeves like did like a thread um, on some of the, the posts and breaking down um, the emails kind of from like a, a TLDR kind of situation. But um, my favorite post or whatever was uh, what about the environment And Satoshi replies in the highlighted text that Will Reeves uh, posted was ironic. If we end up having to choose between economic liberty and conservation. Um, just kind of all of these different uh, pieces of FUD that we're still combating, it feels like on the daily, um, he was able to think through these things or talk to enough people um, in his group to to be able to like, before we're thinking enough to like how all these things were not going to be attacked on attack on Bitcoin and, and how it uh, can continue to survive. Even then it's pretty nuts. What's also interesting, I, I haven't read through all of it, but from what I can read is it it continues to bolster who, you know, regardless of who Satoshi actually is, you know, it, it's sort of a kind of a humble person, an academic person, an exacting person. Um, I mean, it looks like there's like no spelling mistakes whatsoever, yet he seems to be writing casually. Um but he must have changed, obviously, because since Craig Wright is Satoshi, I mean, Craig Wright doesn't seem very humble, um, and it, his writing doesn't seem to match this writing style at all. So I don't know. I don't know what happened. I don't know why he Satoshi changed. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of reading some of the highlighted parts from um, Marty or, or Will Reeves' kind of review of Marty, but it's very extensive. There's like a very long thread of, of correspondence and like i know that people have literally like studied satoshi's uh like uh syntax and and his writing style to try to see who he is and it is interesting because i've read that book the book of satoshi it's really like all the collected emails i guess they got to do an updated version of that now but um it is interesting he says some like he has some more, it's like, it's a more personal exchange. And he, it seems like, like when he responds to Marty at first, he says, thanks for starting that topic on ASC. Your understanding of Bitcoin is spot on. Some of their responses were rather Neanderthal. Although I guess they're so used to being anti-fiat money that anything short of gold isn't good enough. They can see that something is flammable, but argue that it'll never burn because there'll never be a spark. Once it's back with cash, that might change, but I'd probably better refrain from mentioning that in public anymore until we're closer ready to start. I think we'll get flooded with newbies and we need to get ready first. <laughs> and so he's talking about like writing the website and stuff, but I think that the language there is pretty 
it sounds like a Bitcoiner, you know. Yeah, he, him using the word newbies was pretty, pretty funny. Um, what can can anybody give context on uh, why did uh, mommy uh, decide to publish these today? Like, there's a do you, does anybody know why he decided to throw these out there? Yeah, I, I can add context. So currently, there is the Copa v. Right trial going on. So a lot of private communications were. Uh, I don't, actually, I don't know if Malmi was released them or if Adam Back did. Um, or maybe they both did. I know they're kind of releasing information of private communications between them and Satoshi. So instead of things that it made to the mailing list, like individual communications of email communication between themselves and Satoshi, um, I think it's evidence that's being used uh, against Craig Wright uh, in his claims of claiming to be Satoshi. I know for those in the audience that don't know, Terrence was kind of joking about uh, Craig Wright being claiming he's Satoshi and the uh, claims against him, basically. Yeah, a lot of people thought, you know, maybe they still do, but think that Adam Back was Satoshi or um, the B-Money guy, Wei Dai. I think, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Wei Dai. But the emails between Satoshi and Adam Back, I mean, make it seem like they both probably aren't Satoshi. I thought it was interesting that Satoshi had never heard of B-Money, uh, one of the, you know, early attempts to create something like bitcoin um adam basically shared to satoshi in an email have you have you seen b money before it might deserve a citation and he's like no i haven't heard of that before so i think we can like cross out uh way die or anybody actually anybody who knew about b money prior to satoshi. yeah i think Debo knew about b money as well so you know that kind of crosses him out as well yeah now, honestly, Satoshi could be like playing 3D chess here, and that's what he wants us to think. But um, you'd think that anybody who spoke on B-Money or knew about it, maybe you could cross them off. Terrence, good morning. We're talking uh, the Satoshi emails release. Yeah. I've, I've been listening. I didn't realize. Um, yeah. I've been listening. Well, I thought it was just fascinating. Could probably move on. Um, yeah, I did. I'm trying to find my tweet. I did find one part in that exchange, I think with the guy you mentioned, where Satoshi said something like he was kind of giving it a sort of a marketing kind of one-liner pitch about this could give you freedom from centralized um, inflationary money or something. It was kind of interesting. But let me try to find it. I'll put it in the comments. That's interesting. He just, I don't know, in some of these uh, emails, he just, he really does just sound like a Bitcoiner, which is, I know, kind of obvious, but just the way he talks about some of the things. And I think in past, um, communication satoshi has always sounded very like exacting and business-like almost um this one i don't know there seems to be more personality or something yeah yeah i found the email it was to marty mommy and this was from tuesday july 6 2010 
um, escape the arbitrary inflation risk of centrally managed currencies, exclamation point. Amen. Put it on a t-shirt. Sam, does he, does he mention anywhere in there um, Pez dispensers or Pet Rocks or Indivisible Pizza? Because I, I couldn't find that, but I, I have to go further. No, he did not. I wonder if Satoshi foresaw some of the common FUD. If he knew what we were about to embark on in endless fight against the same FUD for the next 15 years. Would you think from the emails that it's an American writing those? I mean, I'm not like an expert in analyzing <laughs> language. I mean, I know people have said I, from that book, I, I recommend that book. Like if anyone's interested the book of Satoshi, it's a solid book. Um, but there's been multiple analysis that kind of guess that he, you know, was educated in the West, but he might have Japanese descent or, you know, that's, it's all a guess, you know, like it's all, it's all complete guess. Like who knows? It sounds like American English to me when I'm reading these emails, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, use the word newbie. Oh, wow. I missed that. Yeah. American slang or something. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we don't know who he is or she or they, whatever. Hope we never find out. Um, but yeah, some of the FUD, uh, we could kind of pivot away from that. You know, some of the FUD that continues to get spread came from the uh, ECB yesterday in a quite, I thought it was almost funny post. Um, I wrote it like a thread about it, but it was called ETF approval for Bitcoin, the naked emperor's new clothes. And if you remember correctly, the ECB wrote a piece in November 2022 called Bitcoin's Last Stand while they were kind of like kicking Bitcoin at the bottom of the bear market, almost like taking a victory lap of how it failed. And Bitcoin's up 200, over 200% since then. <laughs> and, uh, the ECB has a bunch of egg on its face, but it's deciding to double down with a new post of how the ETF approval for Bitcoin basically is not a sign of its success or acceptance at the institutional level. Um, it's actually in some way a sign of its failure. Um, and then the piece is just riddled with like just complete nonsense, to be honest with you. Um, it just, to me, my biggest takeaway was that the ECB seems like they're threatened. I don't know why they would spend the time to write a piece like this if they didn't feel like Bitcoin is at least some kind of small threat to them. And, um, you know, they talk about the, the social damage that Bitcoin can do. The, and to me, I think they should look in the mirror. And they, they call it a house of cards. I say they should look at their own balance sheet. Um, because quite frankly, in their Twitter profile, it says, we're tasked with maintaining the euro's purchasing power. And as Stackholder pointed out, the euro is down 99.5% against Bitcoin in the last 10 years. So I want to say they're doing a good job. And so maybe that's why they're attacking Bitcoin. And so 
they did a better job managing their own currency, perhaps they wouldn't feel the need to attack Bitcoin. But anybody have any takeaway from that ECB post? What would they like to say? Yeah, I, I can hop in here. Um, it's, it's Speaking of their own balance sheet, Sam, I know that they had uh, the first time a loss on their balance sheet since I think 2004 or 2005. And it wasn't like insignificant. It was like $1.2 billion. It really is closer to like six and a half or six point eight billion if you don't account for their kind of shifty accounting tricks of like, oh, this is something we owe ourselves and like, you know, weird, you know, roundabout ways of making it paper over and not look as bad. But yeah, I mean, the ECB's balance sheet is abysmal to say the least. Um, I think it also coincided. I you brought up twenty twenty two. I know right at that time, it kind of seemed like a coordinated attack. Obviously, you know, Bitcoin was down in price and fiat terms and down, you know, a large percentage. Well, it was like 70, 75 percent or so uh, as how much it was down. And I remember Trudeau was attacking it, kind of tying him in, which is pretty funny because within that year, the Canadian truckers protest, the only thing that really worked to get money to the truckers was Bitcoin, you know, when they were starting to close down the accounts with the Emergencies Act. So I know that's not Exactly related to ECB, but kind of tied in tangentially. Yeah, it's it's almost hilarious that they, <laughs> they post that Bitcoin. They just spend the time to write that in the first place. It's just uh, mind-boggling to me. But then, like, they don't they easier things to do or to focus on. Um, but also, like you said, I mean, they're operating at a loss the first time in a long time. And they posted it like the tweet after, like they're literally like within hours of each other, you know, basically talking about all the harm they can do. And you're right, they do like uh, accounting tricks. And so they can kind of like work their way out of it, essentially. Um, now, who hurts is like the Europeans because eventually if they do become profitable again what they'll do is they'll you know fix their balance sheet first instead of sending the money to the to the eu i guess um as an income source because usually the central banks are supposed to like make money and and be an income source for you know the the populations that they manage or whatever you want to call it uh but now that they're operating at loss once they become profitable again they'll just pay that down first. And so that income doesn't go to the people. Um, that's kind of the purpose of the central bank. It's supposed to be this independent like organization that actually makes money and sends it to the treasury if it was the United States. And so, yeah, it's, it's kind of like throwing rocks from a glass window at a bad time for the, for the ECB to be attacking Bitcoin. How many people you think uh, actually read uh, this that aren't even into Bitcoin? You know, because like if you got whiff of this and you decided to read it and you started believing this, but then here in the next year you see all what's happening with the ETFs, and then you start to see price appreciate at such a you know like we expected to or whatever, and then you know you just kind of coming like you said coming out with this at the timing that they did would just make me think that a lot of the citizens are just going to think that this. ECB is just full of it. You know, it's kind of like showing that they're the emperor kind of with, with no clothes on kind of, so to speak, like they're just putting out a bunch of FUD. And when it's such a popular subject like Bitcoin, it's easily 
like refuted, you know, like what they're saying. It's uh, I think it's going to show egg on their face over the next year or two for the the citizens that got to read this stuff. Tying tying that in, Jacob, do you remember? And this co- kind of coincides with twenty twenty two as well, like the coordinated FUD. Does uh, everyone remember the St. Louis uh, Fed putting out the bit, uh, eggs priced in Bitcoin and they thought they were going to like get us by like being like, oh, look, you know, eggs are uh, more expensive if you price it in Bitcoin. But they basically timed pretty close to the bottom. and It's been up only or, you know, it's getting cheaper to buy eggs priced in Bitcoin since they made that chart. I love that chart. You can do it with all kinds of things. Chicken in bitcoin i wrote this whole piece about uh that and i included it like when it first came out i, I still can't believe they did that <laughs> it's amazing there's also the website priced in bitcoin just reminded me of it great website if anybody wants to check it out just uh basically you can see houses priced in bitcoin uh precious metals um all types of beef eggs cheese soybeans lumber milk and uh there's a lot of red on these charts because bitcoin has appreciated against all these commodities over longer time frames um which is what you'd want to see in a money or something that you save in over time hey uh terrence do you have a minute to talk about yesterday? That did you do that webinar with Lynn? And yes. How did it go? Yes, we like to call it live stream. To uh, webinars sound very boring, but yeah, it went great. Uh, Stephen and I asked a couple questions of Lynn. I tried to get her to ask about talk more about how she doesn't have a hundred percent of her or anywhere close to a hundred percent of her assets in Bitcoin, and she explained that she has a lot of venture investments, so that money is not liquid and her percentage kind of of Bitcoin exposure just keeps going up because as we all know, just even having a little bit of Bitcoin, the the percentage of your total net worth just grows. That's Bitcoin being an exponential asset. It just keeps going up over time. You have to hold it long enough through at least one, one cycle, right? One happening cycle. Um, we had a lot of great questions. I thought this one was the most balanced between Letting someone like Lynn, we've also had Vijay Boyapati and Corey, letting them talk about, you know, what people are there to see, which is, you know, hear them talk about um, their area of expertise, bullish case for Bitcoin, macro, whatever. And also we were able to talk about um, IRAs a bit and because we do, do have a lot of questions from people who want to understand why they should put Bitcoin in an IRA when it feels like it's locking that asset up for for years or decades um because you, you don't get a qualified distribution till later and so forth and also the, I, I just end with a lot of people don't know that unlock or have not fully aware that the reason to buy bitcoin over say an etf in your ira is number one you can buy bitcoin 24 7. you can't do that with your grayscale uh, GBTC, if you still have that, the fees are also much lower in that case. And lastly, um, you can actually withdraw real Bitcoin if you want, subject to applicable taxes and penalties and so forth. 
you cannot do that ever with any of the ETFs because you're just taking kind of the price risk and benefits. You're just getting US dollars back. And I believe if anybody still wanted to watch that, you'd be able to uh, go to the link. It's up in the nest. And then you could just type in your email and they'll send you the file of the video. So it should be pretty good. Um, Sam, do we have you on the panel? He's uh, saying in the back that he is on, but I'm not seeing him up here. So I may have to tell him to reset. Oh, there he is. Let's see. Sam, do we got you? Yeah. I heard I, I was I was I guess I was in the audience, but I heard everything Terrence just said. Anytime Lynn talks, I just listen. I mean, it's a pretty straightforward rule in my life. And it's served me well. Hey, um, other Terrence, did you did you guys talk at all about with the portfolio allocation um that uh you know some of the uh investment advisors and the RIAs are eventually gonna be making with Bitcoin, however small that begins, that, you know, with the mm -hmm. rebalancing, because you just reminded me of, of Lynn's Bitcoin allocation growing as Bitcoin grows. It, are, do we think, does she know, or do you know, are, will the advisors be reallocating as it grows so quickly, like almost quarterly to the point where they're going to have to be selling off some Bitcoin to remain at a one or 2% allocation? Yeah. Um I don't think we talked about that specifically, but it's a great point, Terrence. Um, they, they are going to do that. So what they're going to be doing then is, in effect, they're going to be selling higher, buying lower, right? Because Bitcoin goes up and down. And that's going to have a dampening effect on volatility, which is great. So there's a lot of people who don't like Bitcoin because it's way too volatile. To the downside is what they're worried about, although it's also violently violently volatile to the upside and mostly upside overall if you can hold it the problem with bitcoin is hafa has said our uh, chief investment officer um he goes by alpha zeta and he came up with by the way nakamotoportfolio.com where you can see what a little bit of bitcoin does to a 60 40 portfolio or whatever your current portfolio is how that can diversify away risk price risk uh, or return net asset value risk and also add to returns but bottom line um he said that bitcoin is very hard to hold why and it's see jeff ross i hope he comes up um but bitcoin's hard to hold because most days it does nothing or goes down so that's why it's very frustrating to people and they end up selling so often the more they look at the price i think people should not look at the price they should just buy and hodl and do other things I mean, people like Sam and, and myself and, and Chris and others, we, we have to look at the price because we work in Bitcoin. We're public facing somewhat. So clients will ask us about it or in Sam's case, he's writing about it and on podcasts and at conferences talking about it all the time. So we have to look at the price more, but you all should not look at the price so much. Yeah. So I think the investment advisors would then have to sort of take and average or something over a period because they could be at the end of a quarter or some small window where they want to rebalance and you know bitcoin has violently gone up and that's going to sort of leave them in trouble that's a great point yeah um yeah i don't know what um portfolio managers do with let's say nvidia or certain tech stocks 
that are also so volatile, but they do it month end or quarter end when they're rebalancing. But that's a great point. Yeah, it sh should probably be the average of the last five days or something of the, you know, when they rebalance. That would make more sense. Maybe the resident radiologist knows. Dr. Jeff, welcome. Hey, morning, everybody. I was just trying to uh, get a handle on what you guys are talking about. I haven't uh, just got here, so nothing to add yet. But I'll happy. I'll be happy to contribute at some point. We were just talking about rebalancing, you know, portfolios as Bitcoin becomes more of a, a retail asset, um, and uh, trying to keep their clients at you know two, three, four, five percent allocation to Bitcoin, and as it moves quickly to the upside, if that falls in a window where they need to rebalance, you know, are they going to get stuck or are they going to start taking a longer average of that allocation? Yeah, I got you. You know, different advisors have different, um, their own little rules for when they do rebalancing. Some do monthly, some do quarterly, some, you know, some do yearly uh, rebalancing. And Bitcoin really um, um, forces you to rethink that in a way uh, to kind of, um, determine what the the best way to do that for your clients is based on the volatility of bitcoin right i mean it's not abnormal for bitcoin to go up 100 percent over a two or three month period in a bull market and it's also not abnormal for it to fall 80 percent in a bear market over the course of a year um so those kind of decisions are going to be hard um you know for a lot of these advisors the other funny thing and i know you know we know this and you can see this in the nakamoto uh portfolio um, as well, is that at some point, Bitcoin, even a small allocation becomes kind of a, such a large part of a portfolio that that actually is going to make a lot of traditional financial advisors uncomfortable. They actually really don't know what to do with big winners. And it's not just Bitcoin. We've seen that with NVIDIA and in the past with things like Netflix and Amazon and Apple and those kind of things too. So those high growth things tend to actually make advisors uncomfortable and they don't really know when to um, uh, take profits and when not to. So I'll be very curious to see kind of what the consensus is on, on when people actually do rebalance. I think the Nakamoto portfolio suggests in terms of tax efficiency and in terms of maximum portfolio gains, it's almost best to not rebalance Bitcoin, even though you have that every fourth year huge drawdown. Um, but a lot of clients, my own clients, I have a, a small minority of clients who just can't handle that volatility. And so it kind of pushes me into a weird spot. Um, personally, I don't rebalance, right? All I, I, I wait to buy Bitcoin um, when it's cheap and then I just hold it through the, the bull markets and then the bear market. And then I start buying again when it's, I think, cheap again, like it is right now. Um, but for a lot of financial advisors, uh, their clients aren't going to be able to tolerate that if their little two or three percent position grows to a ten or fifteen or twenty percent position in their portfolio. Um, they're gonna they're gonna be left kind of wondering what to do. So it's a learning process that you have to go through at least one cycle and ideally maybe two cycles before you understand how Bitcoin really works and to get comfortable with it. Um, so it's it's an interesting process. It's fun that it's finally you know reached Wall Street. Um, there's ups and downs to that, obviously, uh, and we're we're seeing a lot of that. Like, is it better to own the the ETF or own Bitcoin outright? I think most of us would say you should own it outright for sure. Um, but most people, there's a ton of money that's going to come into it in in the form of these ETFs, and so these advisors are um, just going to be forced with a lot of difficult decisions uh, in the coming years. Definitely going to have to be rebalancing. And I wanted to touch on what Terrence said because Hoffa and I actually did that research together when we talked about how Bitcoin tends to move in 
short explosive movements to the upside and then most of the time it trades sideways or down um this was from this was done in like march 2023 so the price has almost doubled since then uh, but we looked at the top 15 three-day bitcoin moves over the last five years uh, when we did this research and if you missed those three-day periods where bitcoin moved the most if you had invested $100 into Bitcoin on February 1st, 2018, that $100 would be $227 at the time. So if you just held it, did nothing. Uh, but if you were an investor and invested that $100 and just missed those top 15 three-day price movements, your original investment would have been only worth $15. And so at a time when Bitcoin had increased more than 100%, you would have been down on your position 85% by missing those short explosive movements. And we just saw this um, after the ETFs, like we saw Bitcoin move about 15% in one week. And so that kind of uh, behavior of Bitcoin continues. And so that's why it's so difficult to trade such a volatile asset and time this because you can't find yourself sitting on the sidelines or you will dramatically underperform just buying and holding it and so it's something to keep in mind if, if you're coming into this for the first time and you think that you can time it and just know that if you if you're not if you're on the sidelines and when bitcoin moves you're, you're going to get hurt over the long period of times so this reminds me go ahead Oh, Terrence, go for it. Oh, yeah. This reminds me of the Fidelity study where they looked at, um, you know, people's investments. And the people who did best were people who forgot they had a Fidelity account and didn't touch it or were dead. Yeah. <laughs> totally. We dead are people are great enemies. investors. Yeah. Was it Jesse Livermore? Uh, the guy had said, like, the way to make money is when I did nothing or sat on my hands or something. Reminiscence of a Stock Operator. It's one of my favorite books. Fantastic book. Um, I wanted to switch the subject a little bit because we saw Donald Trump speak on Bitcoin. Uh, you know, one of the leading presidential candidates. Um, he's spoken on it in the past, uh, but he was asked about it again last night, and I thought we could maybe discuss it. So, Jacob, you want to roll it? <laughs> the Chinese uh, digital currency, but next logical step for you to embrace Bitcoin because Bitcoin obviously is decentralized. The government can't get its hands on it. What about Bitcoin? All the young people, including African Americans, who are are very interested. In well, a lot of people are doing it. I always liked one currency. I could I call it a currency. I like the dollar, but a lot of people are doing it. And frankly, uh, it's it's taken a life of its own. You probably have to do some regulation, as you know. But many people are uh, embracing it, and more and more, I'm seeing people wanting to pay Bitcoin. And you're seeing something that's interesting. So uh, I can live with it one way or the other. I've always liked one really powerful thing, and that's called the dollar. Yeah. All right. Um, Joe, we haven't heard from you. Do you have any thoughts around Trump's comments on Bitcoin? Um, yes. Good morning. Um, I think it's a natural evolution where he was going to go. I thought he would naturally embrace this and... Uh, I think it speaks to the growing, you know, unfortunate political divide that is coming in Washington from all my contacts that this is becoming an increasingly partisan issue with 
right uh, center right candidates, I think, uh, increasingly being more open to, quote unquote, crypto and Bitcoin and uh, more leftist candidates becoming more hostile to it. So I don't necessarily I mean, it's positive for a presidential candidate of any kind to be speaking favorably on Bitcoin. I wish it were less of a partisan issue. And I think given whether you like him or hate him, it doesn't really matter. Given the, the toxicity towards Trump, I really hope it does not uh, develop into uh, even more partisan because of his, uh, you know, sort of lukewarm sort of I can live with it type approach to it. I actually think that's probably better um, that he has that sort of more neutral to slightly favorable outcome, because if he were to come out and fully embrace it and say, I'm a huge Bitcoin proponent, I think that the natural reflexive response from the left would be, well, then it must be the worst thing in the world. So I think probably, uh, it's the best sort of, uh, sort of middle ground that we could get at this point that he's, he's lukewarm to the favorable, uh, without fully embracing it. Um, but, you know, uh, it could be it could be a situation where uh, in the future, you know, I, I do expect him. Uh, I, I mean, I think he's going to do very well uh, in the coming presidential contest. In fact, uh, if he had a gun to my head, I think he, he's going to be elected um, or reelected, depending on your perspective. Uh, but, uh, you know, for moving forward, uh, you know, it'll be interesting once we get an SEC chair from his administration in there. Because my expectation is that if that's the case, it's going to be a full, you know, full-throated embrace of quote-unquote crypto uh, at the SEC that's going to be much more favorable than uh, past uh, administrations. So uh, there's something for everybody in there. But uh, overall, you know, it's definitely not a negative in my mind. Yeah, I think, I think Joe, you, you nailed it. And uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't pinpoint what it was, but the fact that he isn't coming out super strong on Bitcoin or against it, I think is helpful, obviously, because of his polarizing personality and politics. And we know some of this is probably politics, right? I'm sure Vivek is in his ear, which I think is is good and positive. And I believe, unless I'm wrong, I think his um, son-in-law, Jared Kushner, is has invested hundreds of millions into some kind of Bitcoin payment services or "Quote unquote crypto payments, services, yeah, but I think, and crypto yeah. companies. He he actually is now investing in a few different well, that I'm aware of crypto companies. So, I I totally think you're right. That's exactly it. And and it's not going to be a you know, Bitcoin type administration, but I think it could be very wildly pro crypto. Yeah, and I'd also say, um, regardless of what you think of Trump, um, I'm not a fan in many ways, but um, he's smart and meaning like he can read the tea leaves, he sees the ETS or he's just heard of Bitcoin being reported more positively and maybe from his key donors or benefactors, whatever. So I think he's going to start accepting Bitcoin as political campaign contribution soon. He's obviously um, much more, his approach is much more benign because Bitcoin's doing quite well, so. Yeah, to me, it was a shift from like he, he's been a little bit more um, dismissive and kind of and I wouldn't say anti, but just kind of brushes it off. And to me, it was a shift to a more neutral stance than what he's done in the past, which is fine. I, th- I, I thought it was interesting. You know, he's basically saying that they both can can coexist, right? The dollar and Bitcoin, which is, I think, a good narrative to go. 
Like I, I spoke with Lee Bratcher uh, this week on Swan Signal Live, and that's exactly what he said. He's like, you can't go in there guns blazing when you talk to these politicians and say Bitcoin's going to kill the dollar and it's all going to go down. Um, it's much more uh, beneficial if you go in there and say, yeah, these things can coexist. Like even if you don't believe it for over a long period of time, but you know, for now these things could coexist. Bitcoin's like a store of value. The dollar will still continue. Um, and that'll get people much more receptive to listening to your arguments. And he talks about how he kind of changes his uh, pitch based off their political affiliation. Yeah. But interesting. And yeah, Joe, go for yeah, it. Yeah, no, Sam, I just want to mention one thing on that. So I was uh, given access to some pretty interesting polling data among Republican primary voters, which surprised the hell out of me, to be honest. Um, and what the, the key thing that jumped out is that um, do you, there's a, there was a polling question that asked about do you in the Repo among Republicans, right? Do you want the administration and Congress to take active steps to promote the U.S. dollar abroad? And something like 92% of respondents said, absolutely, we want to strengthen the dollar abroad. And they asked questions about gold and they asked questions about Bitcoin in the same poll. And um, among, among the respondents, right, something like 60% of gold uh, said we should favor gold and support gold as a strong currency. The government should hold gold. I can't remember how the question was actually asked. And then Bitcoin was in like the forties, um, which was still really high from my perspective that, you know, you had a Republican uh, primary respondents very favorable for the, for Bitcoin. But that's the point, right? Like you had a huge, you, I mean, you kind of heard this even in the audience where he said, I want a powerful dollar, whatever, you know, however, he, everything with him is power. Uh, but it was kind of interesting, right? You get the cheers from the applause uh, and applause from the audience when the, he's talking about the dollar favorably. Um, but I also think like there's tons of overlap, right? There's a lot of people out there who own Bitcoin, but also like for national uh, reasons, for nationalist reasons, they really want a strong dollar. And I think they're entirely coexistent um, among the general, you know, non non hardcore Bitcoiners. Yeah, you see uh, kind of Sailor do that as well. Um, you know, I think he's always just kind of like pro-Bitcoin, pro-Bitcoin. It, it's not – right now, it would be harmful to be anti-anything, um, at least publicly, um, including the dollar. But, you know, Lee also shared – Lee's the president of the Texas Blockchain Council, and so he's talking to politicians a lot. And he um, he mentioned that – they did a survey of their own and it was with a third party and it was a, you know, pretty substantial survey uh, with a lot of participants. And it was kind of surprising to him because, um, you know, I thought the same as Joe, where it's kind of more like center right leaning people that are more likely to embrace Bitcoin. But what their survey showed was that it's pretty, it goes across the aisle and that it was pretty equal um, in terms of party affiliation of how, how much they appreciate Bitcoin or not. And so that was kind of uh, encouraging to hear. I don't know if I believe it. It's just one survey. I, I kind of lean towards with Joe that it's kind of more towards the right right now. But um, there are reasons for the left to like Bitcoin. Um, a, a lot of reasons, I'd say. Sam, have you read, have any, any of you read The Progressive Case for Bitcoin? I have the physical book. I need to read it. But um, yeah, just wondering if someone yeah, I, I read make it, yeah. a, what, 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 what are the key about? kind of takeaways or 
like arguments that us Bitcoiners tend to tend to miss about what why progressives should be supporting Bitcoin. Well, you should read it. Um, so, I mean, obviously, in, in there's a lot of folks that have documented this outside of that book, but um, you know, the inclusivity that is afforded by Bitcoin that's like a key selling point. And then the book spends a good amount of time, like sort of pushing back against misnomers. And like, you know, for example, like, uh, you know, obviously progressives are, have no issue with taxation and, and government spending and those sorts of things and how it, it sort of paints a vision of how that is compatible with Bitcoin, right? Like there's, I don't know where people get this notion about Bitcoin that like, oh, well, in a Bitcoin world, we won't have taxes, we won't have government spending. Um, you obviously put a check on that. And, you know, there's the arguments there that are well documented about how uh, to the extent, if you believe monetary and fiscal policy drive inflation, like that hurts the poor. And, you know, that is a check on that. Bitcoin, with its fixed supply, uh, will make it harder for the quote unquote debasement. I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing the argument, but that's, that's effectively what's made. But then also the, the issue of like, you know, you could totally have an activist progressive government um, where the underlying base money is Bitcoin. There's, they are compatible solutions. Hey, good morning, everyone. Can you all hear me? Um, just wanted to hop up real quick and throw my two cents in on the political, I guess, Bitcoin kind of bridging the, the divide across the political spectrum. And I think if you look at polling data on the general distrust in institutions being at at least multi-generational highs right now, I think that's a big component of it. I think a lot of the you, you see a lot of stuff where it's not even necessarily that there's a rhyme or reason for some things. There's just a general distrust among the populace in all things um, authority figures right now. And that does cross the political divide. People ascribe different reasons for it. But I think Bitcoin, to some degree, is obviously positioned as something that's just not an institution. Therefore, people support it because they at least right now, definitely don't trust institutions of any kind, except for maybe the most hardcore leftist. But I don't know, that's just my take on it. And I think that's why it's not super surprising to me to see that there are a decent number of progressives that are also pro-Bitcoin. Well, progressive progressive uh, voters, I think you're right, right? Do you, I don't think there's a ton of progressive electeds that are really strongly Bitcoin supporters, maybe a handful here or there. Agreed. Yeah, I, I just yeah, that's a good clarification. I was going to chime in with with something similar. It makes these these topics are very interesting, but they can be difficult to talk about because you could probably get five people who call themselves a progressive and they mean five different things. Um, so if you're talking about Elizabeth Warren, you know, probably calls herself a progressive. AOC calls herself a progressive. I don't think they are going to be supportive of Bitcoin anytime soon. But there's probably other politicians or, like Joe said, uh, voters who consider themselves progressives, but probably are closer to what I would call a classical liberal. And I think those people, um, Bitcoin arguments probably make a ton of sense with them. So, yeah, it kind of these words are, are pretty difficult to use. You know, these political words have changed meaning um, in just a matter of years, uh, definitely have changed a lot of meaning over the course of decades. So that makes these topics a little tricky to talk about. Yeah, I guess to clarify my position, it would be 
people who traditionally would have voted Democrat are, it's not surprising to me that those people, there's a decent plurality of them that are pro-Bitcoin or at least neutral on it. And I see that in my own friend group of people who do lean left. Most of them are, are neutral or pro-Bitcoin or they just don't know anything about it. But I don't know any of them that are like the Elizabeth Warren stance of vehemently opposed to it. But that's also because they're probably not on the American Bankers Association payroll. Well, yeah, I mean, to the to your point, look at some of the data among uh, communities of color, right? Like like African-American ownership of, of crypto and Bitcoin. It's like it's huge. Um, I think uh, let me get the stat here, but it was like more. Uh, more of them, more African Americans own crypto than stocks, like outright. Like it's a crazy stat. Let me pull it up. But I think there's probably a general just once again. I just go back to that distrust of of anything that's seen as institutional or authority figure. It, it makes sense that people in historically, um, I guess, just. <laughs> I don't even know how to put it. I hate using some of these terms because then it makes you sound like you're a, a communist, but like marginalized communities, I guess, is the best way to put it. People that are in those communities don't really trust institutions of any kind, rightfully so, because there's a historical reasoning for that. And so if you have something that, at least in its early days, has been positioned as a digital way to give a finger to the man, well, then you're probably going to get a lot of people from those communities who are at least in it and more so than they would trust a, a Charles Schwab brokerage account, you know? <laughs> yeah. So here's here's the stat I was thinking of. 2022 Ariel Schwab Black Investor Survey. One quarter of black Americans own crypto compared to only 15% of white investors. That's crazy. I'll go on the record saying macro minutes. I, I don't think you are a communist for making that statement. Appreciate uh, that. I'm out doing my me. best. <laughs> Terrence is on the fence. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense that people distrust the institutions. We live in the golden age of corruption right now, I'd say. But it's interesting because you could think of Bitcoin as like a unique new type of institution that provides order in a very unique way, sort of like this automated gov government that provides property rights, um, self-sovereignty, and, yeah, and freedom it, money, right? It's like a, it lacks central planners, so that that kind of reduces the systemic volatility um, of the system as a whole. And kind of, it is kind of like a unique form of new, like a new institution almost. It's kind of a weird way to think about it, but... Brandon Quidditham, Quidditham and I talked about this with Neil Howe, um, who's the author of The Fourth Turning. And this really resonated with him because it kind of looked through his framework with an orange lens. And I always liked the idea. I see it as a bit of a continuation of the spirit of the American experiment, right? Which was the intent was to have a system of rules, not rulers. And that really is just Bitcoin has ported that into the digital world. So it's to your point, it's still a system. And I guess by that definition, you could say it's partially it, it acts like an institution, 
the difference being there's not a, a central point of authority that can bend the institution to their will. And that's where, to me, it's much more similar to the ethos of, of the American experiment. And I think it's a continuation of that worldview and idea. Well said. Have any of you guys, I, I saw that you're at least in the title talking about the Satoshi emails. I, I haven't got a chance to go through them yet. Were there any big nuggets aside from Satoshi is not afraid to use the word retard? Yeah, we kind of we kind of talked about it at, at the beginning of the show. There's a lot of interesting nuggets in there. I think since their you know, personal correspondence between just one person, he's a little bit less uh, professional. You kind of see some more personality come out. And there's some interesting questions he's asked, like, um, what do you think of Bitcoin in the environment? And why did you pick 21 million? Why does Bitcoin have value? And he gives like uh, some short responses to those questions. And so check out the thread by, I think, Marty Malmi. Um, it's really interesting. I found it really, really interesting. I'm gonna, it's a long, long thread too. So I, I haven't even read maybe, I don't know, 70% of it. Could, do you have the thread? Could you put that in the nest? The Will Reeves thread? I think it's already in there. Is it? Okay, let me look back. Yeah. Someone's got a, there's an opportunity here. Someone has to pull a Craig Wright and falsify the emails and have Satoshi saying, if you don't believe me, then have fun staying poor, bro. Big opportunity there. Yeah, Craig's going to probably doctor those emails, you know. See, see, look at this, even though they're like already presented as evidence. I hear I haven't been following that clown show of a court case, but I know that some accounts are are doing that and God bless them. But it just sounds like that guy is off the rocker. That's that's my takeaway from just peering in and looking in for a couple minutes. It just seems like, wow, he is a he's insane. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's like a classic sociopath slash narcissist. And it, it's abundantly clear because he's willing to lie to himself under a in court which is just absurd to maintain his narrative and like you, i don't think that anybody's dumb enough to do that unless they're truly like a sociopath and and they actually believe their own bullshit it's it's kind of crazy so i remember eric lombroso who's a bitcoin og talking about how craig was as persuasive and sort of corrupt as they come or sociopathic, like he was able to convince Gavin Andreessen, Roger Ver, and all these other people that he was Satoshi's was crazy. At great cost to themselves, right? Because Gavin's no yeah. longer part of core. He's this joke. And then um, Roger's a joke and excommunicated from Bitcoin, lost a lot of money on Bitcoin Cash. Calvin lost a lot of money backing um, Craig Wright in his court cases and BSV.
it's it's really crazy how good sociopaths are at manipulating other people like that. I mean, that that's I guess their true talent in the world, right? Because they feel no they feel no empathy. They don't really know they they just become master manipulators and basically it's crazy because like you can have really intelligent people and you get the wrong sociopath in the room with them and they can convince them of almost anything. This is a uh, macro Friday show. Does anyone have any macro takes right now? I think like the biggest news this week was like NVIDIA's earnings that just crushed and seemed like the whole market was focused on that one stock, which I think points to how concentrated this stock market move has been with only a few handful of tech stocks kind of leading everything. Um, but John, you're up here, Dr. Jeff, um, Joe, like, do you guys have any like broader macro takes? Yeah, I mean, I can get the ball rolling just briefly. I continue to hold that the the most similar situation from the recent history that we're in is kind of the mid-90s. I got kind of scoffed at saying this a few months ago. Um, but I, I think that from a macro perspective, the economy is starting to go from bad to less bad. I think it's basically bottomed. I've been watching manufacturing closely, which had posted two expansionary months in a row for the first time since basically the second half of 2022. And that's what's been kind of dragging the rest of the economy down. Services never went into basically any kind of real contractionary mode. It's been weekly expansionary for this throughout this whole process. Um, and so I think that there's tons of skeptics still. There's tons of bears still calling for the end of the world and for the, you know, this massive depression like, you know, event to happen. Um, I just don't see it. I think we're just still normalizing after all of the COVID nonsense and the response to COVID. Um, and all of that massive fiscal stim stimulation and monetary stimulation and just freezing up of the supply chains. I think now what we have is all just normalization. I think rates are about where they should be. I think the Fed funds rate uh, is probably too, a little too tight, but they can, they can afford to keep it tight while the economy is strong like it is. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing as the economy continues to show signs of improvements, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing more and more that banks are starting to lend again, which that will uh, cause an increase in global M2, both in the U.S. and around the world. And I think that's kind of the basis for the next run higher. I think we're kicking a big – I still think there's a recession that is going to happen at some point, but I don't think it happens in 2024, and I'd be surprised if it happens in 2025, maybe towards the end of 2025. Um, but I personally think we're at the beginnings of the next business cycle, and that's a good thing. So I'm generally positive, even though I continue to think Bitcoin, for its part, trends mostly you know choppy sideways until probably the summer. I just posted this morning. I think the bull market starts in earnest on Michael Jackson's birthday. I'll let you Google that to see what that date is, but that's my that's my guess uh, based on past cycles. Uh, and then I think things get fun in the second half of 2024 and into 2025 for those of us that have been stacking. So my opinion, love to hear other people's takes. Um, I see Joe has a hand up, but um, I'll just say this fairly briefly, but um was listening to a macro conversation, Bob Elliott and Adam Taggart, just to see what those guys were chatting about. I think I got halfway through their conversation, but the takeaway seemed to be um, Bob Elliott was talking about something that, you know, others have talked about. It's certainly not unique to him, but he was highlighting the fact that whatever we're going through now, it is not, uh, it's not 2008. 
And well, I shouldn't just say, I shouldn't say it that definitively, but it does not appear to be a repeat of 2008. And it's almost certainly not a repeat of 2020 COVID. So those are the two most recent, whatever you want to call them, recessions, market crises that people have lived through. Um, and I think this, uh, you know, jibes with uh, what Dr. Jeff is saying is that those are the most two recent periods that people kind of have in their mind of when things go wrong from an economic and a markets perspective. But that's not really what we're living through now. So, you know, pick your uh, better comparison, whether it's the mid 90s, whether it's the 40s. Um, but it's important here to not be thinking you're fighting the last battle because uh, it's not it does not appear to be a widespread financial crisis. It's not a shut down the economy and uh, immediately print lots of money and borrow lots of money. Yes, we're still deficit spending a lot. But um, anyway, I just wanted to throw those uh, thoughts out there that the environment that we're in now and probably going to be in for the next few years is is quite different than what I think people uh, are, are used to or maybe some people are expecting. Agreed. Joe, got anything to follow um, up with that? Yeah, um, I, I generally agree with what Dr. Jeff said. Um, what, what I would, uh, one thing I wanted to point out before we get into the, the macro discussion, uh, and maybe somebody can comment on it when I'm done talking here, but I thought it was fascinating this rumor that's been circulating um, on the street and also was directly addressed, uh, I think, in a Morgan Stanley question on the call with NVIDIA was whether um, NVIDIA is going to get into ASICs um, manufacturing uh, in the near future, particularly ASICs, uh, I think, designed to sort, support some of their AI efforts. Um, that might be fascinating if they put together um, that process uh, and, uh, you know, cut into the Bitcoin space, which I think would be very easy for them to do uh, in creating if they're going to do an ASICs line. So that's fascinating. And it was asked on, it was on the call. So he, he kind of dodged, didn't really answer. That'd be great. Uh, yeah, they kind of dodged and didn't really answer it uh, directly. Um, regarding the macro discussion, um, so, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. The MMTers are kind of already uh, circle, uh, circling the wagons here and uh, basically doing, getting ready to do a victory lap with uh, the state of the economy and, and some of the reacceleration, which I think you're seeing uh, in forward leading indicators. And uh, I think Claudia Sam is, is <laughs> said something about like, releasing a paper, um, uh, the MMTers were right all along, deficits don't matter, rates don't matter, these sort of things. It's, you know, we can we can spend whatever we need to do to stimulate and we never need to have recessions again, uh, which is fun, interesting, right, when they finally get that sort of cockiness. Um, but you know what, uh, I, I can tell you just, you know, trying to be objective, put the ideology aside, um, you know, there is plenty of evidence to support the argument uh, that I think Dr. Jeff was alluding to about Reacceleration in the economy. Um, I think that if you get a reacceleration in real estate primarily, that's going to be the single biggest driver here on a going forward basis. And um, you got to remember that as the stock market continues to go higher, people feel wealthier. There's well documented academic research that that spurs consumption. The wealth effect is a powerful, powerful driver of economic growth as people, because it just has a psychological impact. Um, and the, the, the real problematic aspect of it, um, and I think this goes to Governor Waller's speech yesterday, how she said, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, that they wanted to see 
you know, more months of inflation data to, to be confident that January was just a fluke. Um, you know, if, 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 if January um, turns out to be, well, if you turn out, if it turned out to be, we've seen a trend of sticky higher C, uh, PCI CPI, or P, P, PCE CPI. Um, in that case, you know, the rates environment is going to change. I think you're going to consistently see it, it priced out, um, you know, any cuts. And for one, I'll, I'll just go on the side of I don't I don't believe I still think the market's offside with expecting three three rate cuts this year. I think maybe one or two. Um, and they're just to pay, you know, lip service to the fact that they've beaten inflation and that's coming down. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, in terms of real slowdowns in growth, I just don't see it. I mean, I don't see a catalyst for something like that. Um, that can obviously change with the headline very quickly, right? And you can change with, with the headline, but you can't, you know, be constantly bearish and negative on the economy here when the data continues to show, if anything, reacceleration or overperformance. Um, so to me, like, you know, I think it's more of the same, more of this sort of, you know, up into the right sort of trendy uh, environment. And like you said, if the stock market goes higher, I expect, if anything, inflation to pick up again and i expect consumption and i expect the economy to pick up so you know that, that should be that should be your base case in my opinion got a, I agree. i got I, a qu quick question if um sure. yeah so to either jeff or joe uh jeff you mentioned um thinking rates may be a little bit on the high side here but probably in the ballpark of where they should be. Uh, no housing, at least, has started the year off fairly weak, and that tends to maybe not necessarily be predictive, but it, at the very least is indicative of what's going on maybe for more of the, the average person, uh, blue-collar people, right? And I just go back to the sentiment that I see in the people that I talk to daily for work, which is a more blue-collar crowd, there's still a pretty negative sentiment on things. So I, I have this dichotomy in my life right now where when I'm on X and I talk to people who are generally, let's just say higher net worth individuals, people who are closer to your white collar Wall Street types, it's all bullish, bullish, bullish. And then if I talk to people in the blue collar world who are day laborers, mechanics, that those types, it's like, the economy is shit, everything is bad. And so there's this interesting, I have this interesting dichotomy of sentiment that I see in my own life. And if you look at small caps and smaller companies, they seem to kind of reflect that where to me, it feels a bit like you have this concentration risk with NVIDIA being the whole market right now. And then what real world people are experiencing is wholly different from that. And so I'm just curious what your thoughts are there. And, and I, I understand, you know, that um, maybe people think that this thing can go higher, but at a certain point, it seems like that sentiment can't all just be because people are wrong and overly bearish. Like the, the real world no. lived experience is, is real, right? <laughs> so no, I just spot on. Yeah, it's a brilliant question. I mean, it really is because it, it, it I think it encapsulates not just what the dynamics are now macro, but what have they been for the last 30 plus years. Um, this is why you continue to see. And I know, we, you know, a lot of people in Bitcoin circles don't care about this, but it is extremely important. Uh, the wealth and income inequality gaps. OK, and the concentration into those who have assets and those who do not. 
And if you have assets, if you're an asset owner in this economy as it's constructed, as our central planners have decided to protect certain things or advocate towards certain things or spend certain monies to support certain things, you will do very well. Asset owners will do extremely well because they cannot uh, stomach the alternative of deflation. Okay, it, it is, it's too far too painful. They would much rather have an inflationary or even a stagflationary type in co economy than a hard down recession. Um, I don't believe that they will ever allow that to occur. So that's why I've constantly been on the face of, you know, optimistic with pr price, you know, uh, uh, with, with asset prices, because I think that at the end of the day, any sort of turbulence will be met with efforts to offset that turbulence. And it's all about suppressing volatility and pushing markets up into the right. The, the Fed actually talks about this. Healthy and orderly markets are markets that trend upward. Um, there's papers they've released on this. Okay. Now, to, to the point, though, what does that do? That, that creates a dynamic whereby every business can effectively continue to pass off higher prices to their customers. And those customers have to absorb those prices. And there really isn't an alternative, which requires more governmental intervention, more government stimulus to help the lower income people and help them just get by and help all those who own assets do very, very well. So it's very hard to be in a very negative here. Now, what changes that dynamic? I believe the only thing that can truly change that dynamic is significant, sticky, higher inflation, because that affects credit markets. And that affects government spending to a very high degree, which you know is not a problem in the short run, but in the long run, it can become a problem. And then the final piece of it is that if you consistently have higher prices and, and sticky higher inflation, okay, what, what that effectively does is it makes it harder for the stimulus to come. I've been saying for a monetary fiscal stimulus. But you know, the, the problem is that in the short run here, we've seen this disinflationary wave which has been a massive boom, right? A disinflationary wave, even if the prices don't come down, if gas prices retreat ever so slightly, that puts effectively money into the hands of millions of Americans who no longer have to pay $4 or $5 a gallon for gasoline. And that pushes prices higher, right? That's more disposable income. So you have this dynamic here where the sticky inflationary bouts will, will in turn require uh, monitor, monetary policy and fiscal policy to adapt. And that in the short run can cause little bouts of negative price action on, in, on assets. But overall, the trend is up and to the right. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that this dynamic just reminded me of a, a quote from um, When Money Dies, which was, um, in the countryside, the landowners and farmers were less affected than anyone, producing most of their own essentials and putting up commodity prices as regularly as the shopkeepers. Landless peasants were not doing so well. And the large number of casual laborers whose wanderings had been limited by the new confines of Hungary formed a particularly destitute class. And, and I yeah, think we're seeing a similar thing happen right now. It's just maybe a lot of people haven't really recognized what's going on yet. Although if you read that book, then you realize that nobody there realized what was going on until the whole thing came crashing down. And even after the fact, people still didn't figure out what actually happened. So I just think that the parallels there were super interesting to me. And I think it kind of gets highlighted in the the situation that you just described. Yeah. And, and you have to factor in the reflexivity between economics and politics, right? Because the economic system we have, I think, is totally driving our politics and it's creating this division. I mean, this is why a big spending Republican like Donald Trump was able to capture the entire Republican apparatus. I mean, 
the guys who call him conservative, I think you're crazy. Like you, you can like the guy, hate the guy. It doesn't matter to me. What, what matters is his policies are, are firmly on, on the side of a big spending Republican. Um, so like the politics that those votes that he's captured, okay, where he's saying, we're not going to cut social security. We're not going to spend less. We're going to lower rates. We're going to do whatever we can to stimulate. And we're going to do more tax cuts. Those policies, okay, cannot be considered in any sense of the word to be conservative economic policies when you're running the kind of deficits you're running. Yeah, I have, can, um, go for it, Terrence. Yeah, sure. So um, I appreciate what, you're, what you guys are saying. Um, and there is some evidence for that. For example, the Chicago Fed just, um, there's a tweet by this guy, EJ Antoni, that says that there's, it's a picture of a chart that shows that the manufacturing sector has fallen back down to earth and labor cost pressures fell, non-labor accelerated, meaning prices up, wages slowing. So that's bad and consistent with what you're seeing. However, um, there's another tweet by Aaron Dube. I posted both of these in the nest about how a tight labor market helped help narrow the racial divide. And you see this giant drop between black and white wage differentials, meaning the gap is narrowing, has narrowed the last uh, year or so. Um, and implying that um, at least for black Americans, they're, they did well in the last uh, year or so compared to the past. So the average black white log of hourly wage differential has declined quite a bit. It's a pretty significant drop since actually not even the last year. It's the last few years since about looks like 2018. It's been dropping. So I was wondering maybe I could change the subject a little bit because we I talked we talked about um Nvidia and how there's not a lot of market breath out there. But I did a um, interesting, did some research basically over a year ago because this was the huge narrative, I think over a year ago where it was like, oh, this is like really fragile, and this is not a good sign. Everything's coming from a couple big tech stocks. Um, everything else is kind of still under its 200-day moving average, and there's a lot of fear around that. And um, it makes sense to me intuitively, like from a systems perspective. Uh, when something's very top heavy, it seems very fragile and it could crash. So that makes sense to me. But then when I dug in a little bit, um, like for instance, there was a study published by JP Morgan that analyzed the distribution of returns from the Russell 3000 over um, a 24 or 34 year period. And the findings showed that 40% of all the stock components lost more than 70% of their value and never recovered. So to put that into perspective, Nearly all of the Russell 3000's returns in that 34-year time period came from only 7% of the companies that outperformed all the others by at least two standard deviations. And so it underscores like a crucial market truth that tail, the tail drives everything. And right now that tail is big tech and AI and, and NVIDIA. And even if you look at, um, you know, back in 2020, it was the same narrative where five giants market dominance is a grim sign. That's what Goldman said in an, an article. And, you know, since that article was published about a year and a half later, those five techs returned on average 73%. And so usually it just kind of at the start of these long bull runs in stock markets, you actually see 
typically a few like some narrowing happening from these large sec uh, these uh whatever sector it is before these bull markets you actually see some like narrowing happening um if you just look at like historical returns and so i thought that was really interesting when i looked into that a couple yeah. of years ago and um right now you're seeing the same fear right they were wrong in 2020 when they talked about it they were wrong earlier this year when they talked about it and and right now you're seeing the same narrative um but it's not as simple you know it, it's a little complicated it's the same sam this is this is documented through decades of research okay if you were to own the top and, and i was talking to my friend Bitcoin Tino, who's in the audience about this i did the research on this if you were to own the top 10 by market cap stocks for the last 50 years okay you would have beat the s p every single year the top the top stocks by market cap because you're cutting out the losers it's like it's like you know a, a team of all stars basically um you think of it like that the, if you had the nba all-star team like that's gonna beat your average run-of-the-mill five you know squad out there anywhere in any nba team um that's why you know you the reason is very simple right because those that's where capital's going it's allocating in a market cap based fashion uh, to the winners and it changes over time it adapts right like Look at the top 10 stocks in the S&P 500 in 2000 compared to today. Uh, they're, they're not the same, right? Most of them are gone. The vast majority of them, all but one or two are gone, I think. Um, so the point, the point is, like, in markets function by allocating capital. And if you buy an index, it's constantly rebalancing. And you're getting, you're getting rid of the crap over time, even if it's, you know, inflated, bad companies. They get dropped in and out of, out of the index. Um, right now, the Dow is dropping Walgreens, uh, and they're moving in Amazon. Right? Seems like a no-brainer that the Dow should have Amazon over Walgreens. Um, it's you know kind of fascinating how that works, but that's the whole idea of you know Bogle, John, uh, you know John Bogle strategy that you know you can't you don't search to try to buy, find the needles. You know, just buy the haystack, buy it all. Yeah. Amen. Is it? Do you know of any product that just like buys the top ten? No, I actually was like the talking about that. There, there, there isn't one, and the reason I think there isn't one is is uh, always because of like they have this idea that diverse. It goes back to like the goals of investing, right? If your goal of investing is just maximize return, right? By definition, that all that really does is push you out to think about you know how do you concentrate risk. And in the old school, like, you know, 70s, 80s, they talked about risk-adjusted return a lot more. And they focused on, well, we don't necessarily need to perform the best. We just don't want to lose money uh, because we have fiduciary, we have other obligations. So they, they filter in a lot of low beta stocks, stocks that don't really move a whole lot, um, that trend sideways. And the irrationale behind that is that, well, look, these are going to be your, your support um, when, when volatility is... Uh, is moving against you, right? This is this is the whole idea behind the sixty forty, right? The sixty forty will never outperform the the hundred percent equities allocation over time. It's just it just can't do it, right? But but people, uh, you know, were increasingly more unwilling to stomach the volatility, and I think the trend psychologically from the investor of 30, 40 years ago versus now is like, you know, we kind of laugh when our portfolio sees a sixty percent drawdown in Bitcoin. It's like, well, now it's time to buy the dip. Um, that's, that is a change in our mindset. I think as investors, we're, we're, we're more comfortable with, with that type of loss. And I think it's becoming even more, uh, 
prominent in younger generations. Yeah, you see that with some some products, um, some products and funds out there where they're willing to basically give up a little bit of the upside of Bitcoin's performance uh, by limiting the downside volatility um, with different strategies. And um, because, you know, these financial advisors, they, they can't be like, they'll look at calls from clients if, if their positions are down like significant amount. And so they're like, okay, I... I'll take off some of the chips, you know, I, I won't take part in all of the upside, but at least my position won't drop, you know, 40, 50%. And that's, that's enough for me. And so I think there's going to be some, um, some popularity with, with products like that. Sam, have you ever gotten a call from, sorry, have you ever gotten a call from a friend or family member, like panicked about Bitcoin and its price action? Cause I know I've had handled dozens of those calls over the years. Yeah, I mean, definitely, definitely, a few times for sure. Um, March twenty twenty comes to mind, um, and then kind of like the bottom of every the last two bear markets, I got I got calls, had to calm them down. Don't sell, man. <laughs> That's how I'd summarize the conversation. But yeah, if they could limit that, I mean, because it's I mean it's scary, man. When you see uh, on paper. Your, your net worth down 60, 70%. And even if you understand what you hold, uh, but maybe not as well as somebody like myself or or Joe or anybody who, who really studies this thing, they're like, oh my gosh, did I make a mistake here? And that's just typical of cycles and, and market behavior. I mean, that's why bottoms make bottoms and and tops make tops. People always rush in and buy the top and then sell the bottom, unfortunately. But that's kind of just how things go. Buy when there's blood in the streets, right? Warren Buffett. But we kind of went over time. I thought it was a fun conversation, though. I There's a lot of interesting news. And um, we actually didn't even touch on some of the things I wanted to talk about. But overall, pretty exciting week, I'd say. And I um, want to thank everybody for coming up and speaking this morning and all week. Uh, to all the listeners who tune into Cafe Bitcoin, we appreciate your support. Um, let other people know about the show. Subscribe to uh, you know our, our podcasts and the YouTube channels to help us spread the message. We appreciate everything and you guys joining us. You guys are what make this special. Um, check out Pacific Bitcoin. That's the conference we put on in Santa Monica. And in October, uh, you can use the promo code SIGNAL um, for 10% off. And if you pay with Bitcoin, you get 21% off. I'll be talking with uh, James Safer today um, on Swan Signal. That'll be released next week while I'm in Madeira. And so that should be a fun one. Uh, it's been a frenzy over there, and he's the expert ETF guy. He's a, he's a friend of mine, so it should be a fun conversation. So tune into that next week. And uh, you guys have a wonderful weekend. I hope it's a good weather. You guys get outside, talk to some family and friends, and uh, stack some sats. Appreciate you all. Have a good one. <laughs>